Cybersecurity arms race is accelerating. That's the clear lesson of 2022 for those of us committed to protecting organizations from the perils of cyber attacks. We like to think we grow smarter and more capable by the day, but so do the threat actors. While one might argue that expect the unexpected is the only surefire prediction anyone can make, today we're going to put on our pointy hats and gaze into our crystal balls. I'm Ken Cadet, and this is the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast, and this is our 2023 prediction show. So with me are three Entrust experts and today at least prognosticators. We have Anadeep Parhar, Chief Operating Officer and uh, with a heavy focus on transformation of digital infrastructure. Hi, Anadeep. Hey, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. And we have Greg Wetmore, our VP of Software Development and expert at many things. Hello. Hello, Ken. Thanks for having me. And Mark Rucci, Entrust Chief Information Security Officer. Hello, Mark. Hello, Ken. Thanks. Thanks for using the arms race analogy, because in cybersecurity, that, that's a fairly common analogy, and I, 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 I align with that. Uh, thank you. We will uh, we will attempt to use as many um, common analogies and cliches as we can. So, um, and uh, on we go. Let's. Why don't we dive right in? Um, we have three predictions we're going to discuss for 2023 and beyond, and the first one we're going to start in on is about uh, quantum computing. And the prediction is IT starts to get serious about post-quantum readiness. Uh, we know it's coming. Um, some people talk about post-quantum as if it's the next Y2K in the sense that it's a looming issue that could be huge unless we get ready for it. But in this case, we actually don't know when it'll be an issue, right? So Greg, uh, we'll start with you. What What's going on here with post-quantum? What does the C-suite need to know about this challenge? And what do you think is going to drive attention to it in the coming year? I've actually heard this quantum challenge referred to as Y2Q <laughs> as a reference to Y2K. Uh, and the reference to Y2K is useful in some ways, but it's a, certainly a call to action. We all remember the uh, investment and time we all took to prepare our systems for Y2K. I think it's also a little dangerous because people remember Y2K as uh, well, something that didn't actually manifest itself as something that important. I think people forget that there were hundreds of billions of dollars spent preparing for Y2K. Nonetheless, so the quantum challenge really is is about um, the cybersecurity impact that a scaled quantum computer is going to have on today's digital systems. Um, a scaled quantum computer, it's been proven that it will be able to break the public key encryption systems used across all of our digital systems today to protect our identities, to protect our data, to protect secure transactions. And most you know, organizations, most governments now have come out and basically said it's not a matter of if, but when a scaled quantum computer will be realized that can uh, impact cybersecurity in this way. And so, you know, we in, in the cybersecurity industry are um, starting to prepare for this transition to, to what's called quantum safe or post-quantum cryptography. And uh, we've certainly done cryptographic transitions in the past. Um, we've moved, for instance, from SHA-1 to SHA-2 hashing algorithms, or some systems moved from RSA to elliptic curve public key encryption. Um, and it hasn't gone very well, Ken. I, um, huh. It's been costly. It's been time-consuming. Legacy systems have proven to be very difficult to migrate. And, and this transition to post-quantum is going to be more complex than those in the past. Um, so uh, organizations need to start thinking about this and preparing. Um, what what makes it what makes that so complex? Well, uh, post quantum crypto is is going to be it's not really necessarily going to be a drop in replacement for RSA and elliptic curve. Um, 
there's, you know, for instance, significant performance uh, implications to moving to quantum safe crypto. Um, keys and messages can be much larger, uh, processing times potentially higher. That's just one impact that organizations have to think about. Um, but ultimately, you know, most legacy systems aren't what we call crypto agile and transitioning to new crypto systems tends to require new hardware some and new software and that you know that life cycle managing through that transition can take a significant amount of time so mark how does this resonate to you you know as someone who's you know charged with protecting uh protecting our own infrastructure as well as obviously you know that of our customers it's concerning to say the least and, and like greg had given some examples you know just moving from single des to triple des you know there was an effort behind it you know there's resources there's um programs that you have to do to implement it there's tech debt and we're going to find that there's tech debt here um uh, for myself kind of as the CISO side of the hat you know for me it's more the mechanics of all of the work ahead you know gonna step besides you know the concern of the risk uh, of of uh, of of post bottom you know it's updating policies to align with NIST publications as they get published um, strategy development of resource application development to accommodate this world. And again, as, as Greg said, PKI is going to be tremendously affected as the uh, asymmetric keys uh, that underlies it. So one question I have on this is like it's it's something that you know you, it's like every time you read about quantum computing you you know you hear it's going to be you know it's going to be in five years right and and yet I probably heard that three years ago and I heard that you know four years ago and we'll probably hear it next year it'll still be five years how I asked this to like Greg or or Anadeep I how do you create a sense of urgency in an organization to say you know this this really has so to I be can talk about that now. a little bit I I think. Uh, so I think you know all you have to do is sort of follow the 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 news on some of this. You know, you know there the conventional wisdom is in about 2030 is when uh, you know we will reach the state that quantum computing is going to be ubiquitous enough that it will cause impact like Greg described, right? So, but th those times are actually even getting faster. So if you just even earlier in November, IBM just released a new quantum computer which can do like you know, 433 qubits, etc. So, so the the machines are getting faster. You know, the new technology evolution, even when IBM and other folks who are building some of these computers, and I won't go into too much detail, but you know, the caching algorithms that are being used, they are getting to the point that you can scale these things really fast. And the reason you know I bring that up is one of the fundamental issues with the scaling of quantum computers outside of just the physics has been is. Yes, there are quantum computers in our midst as we speak, but are they as scalable and generally available? So if you see that gap is closing and all you have to do is follow the news and some of this stuff. Uh, so it, it, you know, that's sort of how we see it in terms of saying that it's actually gonna get accelerated. Uh, on the other hand, it is that it is not gonna get accelerated, <clears throat> at least in our opinion, for everyone. There are industries that are more susceptible to this or need more preparedness. That's where one of the sort of similarities and differences between the Y2K uh, 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 analogy that, that Greg had. Uh, so, for example, like why, if if you were to take a look at why Y2K didn't have the impact that we think it would, is because companies were prepared, businesses were prepared. So, a similar situation here. The more our organizations and businesses prepare, the better they'll be equipped to do some of this stuff. So you, you don't have to go 
you have to go you don't have to go you know jump with both feet in uh, but organizations need to start preparing because all indicators from a technology and physics perspective are it's going to happen sooner than later yeah i agree i agree totally agree Anadeep. um if you look at the organizations that are funding research into into quantum computing some of the biggest superscalar tech companies in the world the googles and microsofts and ibms uh and then some of the biggest governments certainly motivated to invest in quantum. Almost every, certainly westernized government that I'm familiar with has quantum uh, investment strategies publicly announced. You know, the US, China, like there's an enormous, well-funded, committed uh, set of, of companies and organizations investing in quantum. And we're seeing very publicly continued advancements. The flip side of that, Ken, is that we have some pretty acute use cases now that call for quantum quantum safe right now. We're talking to our customers about harvest now decrypt later concerns where, you know, sensitive data that's traveling over public networks like the internet or wide area network links, it's encrypted. But sophisticated adversaries can harvest that data now in its encrypted form, can save it and potentially decrypt it later when a scaled quantum computer is realized. A lot of that data needs to be secure for longer than that seven to 10 year time frame that, that Anadeep talked about. Um, and so there, again, there's some very acute use cases that call for quantum safe now. Think about some of the embedded devices, medical devices, industrial devices. Those, that equipment lasts longer than 10 years. Even your car, you buy a car right now. We expect the lifetime of those, that equipment to last longer than the hardware that's inside your computing hardware inside your car. Um, so car manufacturers are thinking about, you know, do I need to be quantum safe now, considering the lifetime of my equipment? So there is certainly a call to action here that there are some very acute use cases that aren't seven years away or 10 years away that are right now that organizations have to start thinking about quantum safe. Right, storage is cheap. To your point, harvest now, save for later. Storage is cheap. <laughs> um, if, you look at, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, right, if you analyze the market from where the investments are going, if you look at some of the VC investments that are going into, into PQ, PQ, just the number of startups and mid-sized companies that are developing PQ-type infrastructure. And, and post-quantum is like way bigger than it, it, the ecosystem is way bigger than just the chip. Of course, you know the, the actual chip is where a lot of R and D and a lot of a lot of scale is going. But there's a whole spectrum of uh, of tools that need to be built to help customers uh, fix or enhance their risk posture to address for some of the stuff. Like Greg talked about, I think certain industries, uh, especially in manufacturing, where the average life cycle to get a product out is three to five years, they have to think about it today because the opportunity for them to upgrade their devices is not that easy. And if you look at even from revenue projections, the market sizing, uh, according to all of the experts, is like in billions of dollars uh, for a post-quantum market. Even in the next few years, uh, it's up to 400 million to half a billion dollars that is going to be in new revenue that will be generated from pre-PQ tools. And this has nothing to do with the actual chip manufacturing. Uh, and finally, I would say is where we see in the, in the long tail of this is where the investment and innovation is going to come from is, uh, like Greg mentioned and, and Mark mentioned, PQ is fundamentally going to change the the development paradigm. So essentially, 
all of our algorithms, you know, for our business applications and technology are uh, essentially limited to the traditional way and the traditional algorithms and limitations of the hardware, the chip. And if that changes, there's going to be meaningful investment in terms of saying, how do you change the entire uh, development and software delivery paradigm to address for this new speed that's going to be available to us? So I think a lot of investment is going to go into it. This is not something that has a finite date that you just flip the switch and suddenly you're post-quantum ready. I think it starts with understanding your real estate so you can minimize your risk going into how this will help grow your business because you'll be able to build better software, faster software, uh, and a lot more scalable software as we go forward. So I think there's some really, really interesting things that that'll help drive this. Yeah, and I think it, so, uh, and I think you're kind of getting at this, but you know, I, I did want to ask as we wrap up this topic, um, if I'm a CEO right now, what should I be thinking about or what should I be asking about how my organization is prepared for post-quantum, what should I be doing in the coming year? Needs a formal formality behind it. It can't yeah. be a thing that people are doing on the side. I mean, it really needs, as Greg has highlighted in a couple different areas, this requires a dedicated and systematic approach. Because if you don't have a dedicated systematic approach, you're gonna find major exposures. I think we can use the this this spring in May. The White House released a uh, a national security memorandum that basically called on all the U.S. federal government agencies to start the preparedness, start the planning for this now, and to be reporting out every year on their progress. I think that concept, that call to action, is useful for every organization. Uh, I think every organization needs to start thinking about this transition. Um, they need to start thinking about how do they inventory their their cryptographic assets? How do they understand where the sensitive data is in their organization? And how do they build the, the policy and the visualization and the orchestration to be able to move their um, critical systems from traditional cryptos to post-quantum? That, that effort, that, that sort of step-by-step -step plan, that needs to start now. So yeah, no, I agree with both Mark and Greg. Ken, I think that the simplest question I would ask is one, uh, is a binary question, right? Are uh, are you are we as a company prepared for a post quantum world? And if the answer is yes, it has to be fast followed by saying, how are we prepared? And that's where it goes to what Greg is saying. The first question is to understand your crypto real estate. If you don't understand your crypto real estate, you don't know what to fix. Uh, so I think there is a little bit of time for organizations to get there, but I think the window of understanding your crypto inventory and real estate is shrinking really fast. So that should be the top of mind questions and, uh, for CEOs. What you can measure, you can manage. Exactly. Uh, fantastic. Um, let us, we'll leave that there. Let us jump to our next prediction. And that one is, that consumer identity protection is going to start to lead to new strategies and maybe even new paradigms. Um, by way of introductions, it it definitely seems like big tech has taken ownership of all sorts of online identity. We seem to be overdue for a pendulum swing back to privacy and consumer and citizen control. Just a couple examples, Meta, both Meta and Google recently settled lawsuits related to misuse of consumer data. There was a consumer group that recently sued Apple about location tracking, and another suit alleges that Amazon's Alexa devices are actually recording private conversations and that the company is monetizing the data. Again, these are lawsuits and allegations. Um, 
And yet, you know, these are the companies that are often managing our identities for e-commerce and a lot of other services. So from our point of view, let's look at the bigger picture. What, what is going on here? Um, what's going on with privacy and identity these days? Um, and Greg, I'm going to start again with you because I know you've been thinking a lot about uh, these areas. Yeah, so so one of the things I'm certainly not willing to think is going to change is that it's been proven again and again, consumers are willing to share their personal data in exchange for services they value. Um, that's sort of fundamental to our, our digital lives today. And I'm, I'm not sure that changes over the next year. I think what you were starting to zero in on, though, is that the consequences of misusing that private data uh, are, are continuing to grow. And I think the expectations consumers have on being able to, uh, you know, consent to how their data is going to be used and have the transparency around what data they're sharing and how it you know, how it gets used. I think that's certainly going to be a trend that continues to grow in, in the coming year. One area of tech technology that I think is, is pretty relevant here is this is the growth in a in an area of technology that's called decentralized identity or self-sovereign identity. And this is sort of some emerging technology, emerging standards around you know how identities how trusted digital identities are created and managed, um, leverages some um, pretty interesting distributed ledger, so blockchain technology, so some of the security mechanisms and, and trust mechanisms come from the blockchain world. It calls for consumers being able to manage their identity data in digital wallets, for instance, on their mobile devices, and builds in sort of consent mechanisms and other things that allow uh, consumers to have better control over their digital identities and the data they share. And then it incorporates some re really interesting privacy preserving technologies like zero knowledge proofs that allow you to disclose information about your identity potentially in a privacy preserving way. Um, for instance, maybe I want to disclose that I'm I've you know past the age of majority, so I can you know go to a bar or vote in an election. Um, but I can potentially do that without actually disclosing my birthday, um, just that in fact I am, you know, over 18, for instance. Um, that's a good example of, of a zero knowledge proof that shows, uh, you know, allows you to share an attribute about your identity without, but still preserving the privacy that comes um, with that personal data. Where do you think we're headed with that? Is, is decentralized identity, self-sovereign identity, is that stuff that we're going to, where are we going to start to see that in the in the real world? Or is it starting already? And you know, are we seeing it already in blockchain and cryptocurrency? So that that's a common misconception. I think decentralized identity hmm. really doesn't have anything to do with cryptocurrency. So when we say blockchain, we don't <laughs> actually mean Bitcoin. Um, we're talking here about blockchain as a, you know, potentially useful paradigm shifting technology piece of infrastructure. Um, so so yeah, don't confuse the two. Uh, I think we're starting to see, this is definitely emerging tech. It's not mature yet. We're not seeing it widespread use, um, but you know, areas like the European Union are really active in progressing the standards and defining the protocols and interfaces and data formats. Uh, and so I suspect we're gonna start seeing it first in some of the government digital identity space, probably out of the European Union area. Um, but it's certainly, I think it's going to spread into other aspects of consumer identity, um, enterprises that interact with, you know, consumers or partners um, are going to have to start thinking about some of the concepts that are coming forward with this decentralized identity technology. So it's sort of about like literally giving or sort of assigning to consumers more responsibility in some ways. Yeah, there's, well, that, that's that, that aspect of being able to consent, to be able to control your identity and consent 
to how your data is used, what your what data is being shared, and how it's being shared. That's a big part of um, sort of the technology development that's happening in the identity space right now. I think that's a really you know a topic that's at interest at least that's very sort of close to how we think about about identity and sort of the importance of privacy and sort of compliance and regulatory frameworks, right? I, I think you know. It, 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 Especially, it's a you know with the with the with the next generation entering the workforce and how they conduct e-commerce and everything else. I do think privacy is going to be extremely important to the to the citizens of of the world, so to speak. It's going to be a lot more important. Uh, I you know to Greg's previous point, I think the technology or sorry the the concept of decentralized identity or what used to be called bring your own identity is not new. It's always been, you know, if you go back when Facebook and Twitter were invented, you know, there was a whole push for using your social uh, identity as a login mechanism, so to speak, for for our, for every place. You know, then we have Yahoo's of the world and Gmail's and uh, Microsoft's, which assigned free identity, so to speak, that you can use to access different resources. I, I think the idea has been there. Now it happens to be, or at least we believe, that blockchain is one of those technologies that can sort of enable the distributed nature uh, and the decentralized nature. You could easily do it in a physical database as well. It's just not cost effective. And it has uh, it doesn't have the peer-to-peer uh, uh, type constructs that are needed. But practically speaking, to answer your question directly, Ken, I expect you know that you, you know uh, uh, coming to an Amazon page near you very soon, you will be able to use decentralized identity to log in and just share a minimal but needed information to buy stuff. Today, you have to share a lot more information uh, than uh, than you probably require to just conduct e-commerce. So I think those are the places you're going to start seeing uh, subtle changes emerging. You could use your username, password, or uh, you could just bring your phone with uh, a decentralized QR code, which is pre uh, approved for say e-commerce transactions. So I think I think the control is going to shift back to the consumer, and uh, especially the commerce uh, a part of the ecosystem is going to start start adopting to that. I, I'm a big fan of uh, self-sovereign identity, but I'm a little bit of a cynic for a couple reasons. One, I'm I'm the security officer. Two, <laughs> people dislike friction, and they eventually will move to where there is less friction. Um, doesn't mean I don't think that this might, this is going to be great tech and will work in components. But like you had talked about earlier, this is an arms race. And if you go back, you know, 2,000, 2,500 years ago, someone would come out with a new capability. The adversary would spend years figuring out a way to get around it. You know, this is just another form of an arms race for the, the bad actor. You know, the, the data analytics tools that are out there in the future, we don't know how wickedly smart those are going to be. Um, you know, yeah, privacy, you know, obviously that's going to set the policy, I, I believe, for a lot of these. And it's globally, Europe has generally set the example, you know, here in North America, Canada and California tended to be on the front end of that. But in the meantime, you know, you're still seeing all of these major data breaches you know, around the globe where all of the data is going out the door anyways. You know, if you look at, you know, a lot of it in North America, Europe and Australia right now, two major breaches in about the last six months where looks like, you know, I don't 20 million or 25 million people lost their private data. So, you know, that's still going on. But I, I, I'm a big fan of this. But 
I'm, I'm also a little bit of a realist, I think. It does seem like, you, to Greg's point, to start with, that uh, you know consumers will trade information for services, ease, security, and you know there's a good percentage of people who aren't just aren't going to let themselves be that concerned about about privacy in that sense if it makes their lives harder. Um, which in some ways is unfortunate. In some ways, does that put in some ways does that put more responsibility on technology companies to you know, make this more important for people? Yeah, I think there's no doubt, and and the the evolution of the regulatory environment is certainly recognizing the obligation that companies have to protect and preserve uh, private data. Mm. Um, you talked about California. We talked about GDPR in the European Union. Um, but yeah, the the focus on the regulatory environment around PII, I I know is going to continue from a, you know, getting stricter and stricter with more significant penalties. Um, it's sort of what what the voting public who who vote the governments in these jurisdictions in are demanding. So, um, that definitely makes sense. Uh, so looking ahead, looking ahead to the coming year, yeah, for IT and business leaders. What are some things you should be thinking about in terms of how you're looking at privacy and identity in the coming year and how that's going to be changing you know, based on the way that the world is changing? One of the things you didn't talk about, Ken, is, is identity verification. Um, mm. we're, just, we're sort of seeing the, the Twitter blue checkmark uh, experience in the forefront of public debate right now. Um, and that's really all about ultimately identity verification. Uh, you know, when you're going to issue an identity to someone or a verifiable credential to someone, how do you know who they are? Um, so I, I can see some developments in that space coming. Um, there's some really capable technology today, very usable with great user experience that allows you to, with your mobile device, to, um, you know, take a selfie and compare it to your physically issued government identity and, and establish, you know, with a strong connection to who you actually are, your digital identity. Um, so that's an area we, we certainly, I certainly see as continuing to evolve in the coming year and being more and more important aspect of of the digital identity ecosystem. Well, it's really interesting because I think there's so much, we put so much focus on your commercial identity, what you're using to buy things, or your, your citizen identity, what you're using to you know access government services. We put, with Twitter, it's really all about, in some ways, your reputation. The last topic we're going to tackle, oh, Dan, did you, were you going to say something? Yeah, you know, I was, I was thinking about sort of the right time to insert this. Because <laughs> I think what Greg talked about identity verification and validation, I think, you know, just for the audience, I think one way to look at it more conceptually is irrespective of centralized or decentralized identity ecosystem, I think the act of validating an identity before it can be used is not going away. So I think, I think we're going to see a lot more focus as we go into that irrespective of how the actual activity happens, if it is to decentralize or to centralize mechanism, which in my opinion is going to be hybrid. I don't think it's going to be a singular. It's just the whole ecosystem will get bigger with both centralized and decentralized. But I think the need for identity verification and validation is going to continue going up. Uh, you know, it could be simple things like, you know, getting your national identification or passports or even going to say that you know I need to be able to use a decentralized QR code uh, uh, to uh, to Greg's previous point to be used used at a bar or a voting booth. 
So all of those are going to require some sort of validation verification up front. And I think that's going to be a key, key driver for how the ecosystem evolves. It's fantastic. So let's jump to our next topic. Uh, prediction, an organization's security posture is becoming a board level priority. And this kind of takes us back to where we started. You know, the potential for operational interruption, financial loss, brand damage have moved the enterprise security posture to the top of most of board, board agendas. And we think that's going to continue. Most corporate board members understand the ubiquity of cyber attacks, uh, the idea of it's not a matter of if, but when an enterprise will suffer a breach. Um, so, Anadeep, I'll start with you on this one. You know, how is the corporate board evolving the way it looks at a company's security posture? So I think that that's a, you know, it's evolving in the right direction from my perspective, because, uh, the you know, I think that with the proliferation of digital transformation and so the, 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 I'm, I'm doing air quotes like every business is a technology business now, uh, it, you know, technology is a critical part. IT does matter in terms of how we run a business and how we grow a business, irrespective of if you are in the technology business or not. So with that comes the, the, the burden, so to speak, on boards not to just look at how you are you know, adhering to, 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 the, to the values of the company as well as you know, servicing your stakeholders, but also are you... Uh, uh, as a board, do you have a risk posture understanding which enables continued growth and delivering to the company stakeholder? So it's becoming an increasingly important part, just like any other uh, mechanism such as diversity, DEI, or having technology background. This is as critical as, uh, as some of those uh, some of those vectors, so to speak, for a company's growth. So you're seeing. Uh, a lot more boards embedding cyber risk and remediation into their strategic plans. Uh, and this is going to continue to increase as people are going to start embedding this as not just a risk uh, reduction or a cost to reduce risk, but also as an enabler to grow, especially as you see a lot more new business opportunities are going to require uh, uh, that you know companies have a, a very robust uh, a cybersecurity risk posture and resilience in the mechanism. So it's going to become a growth enabler rather than just something to protect your assets. Business to business transactions won't happen unless you're willing to, unless you have a very strong cyber risk. Uh, risk posture. So I think this is going to become a growth enabler. The second thing is, you know, I think you're going to continue to see the strategic funding that's going to keep going into it. Uh, you know, uh, you know, with with the with the technology, the way it's exploding, and the way uh, sort of the multi-cloud world is expanding, more and more businesses are conducting a lot more business in multiple clouds that deliver value to their customers and, and partners through multiple clouds. In order to secure those multiple clouds, you have to put a lot more investment. So the relationship between so the investment that goes into cyber risk posture management as well as cybersecurity and cyber resilience is more and more uh, directly in relation to uh, to the growth of the company. And finally, you know, I mentioned the word a couple of times. I think the shift at boards is happening uh, I think Greg mentioned it, and Ken, you mentioned it. It's uh, I think there's a realization uh, that given the economics of hacks and threat events, uh, it, it's a matter of it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, organizations uh, will get hacked. There is a normalization that's happening in the industry. So more more and more boards are pushing their management teams as well as their charters to say how to be resil be resilient, how to, how to uh, continue. Uh, business continuity, how to keep making sure we can service our customers when you are attacked by a threat actor. 
rather than purely focusing on saying, how do we protect uh, uh, the said attack from, from happening? So those are the kind of things that I see that the boards are doing right now. And there's a lot of, uh, lot of awareness around this stuff and the proof points are right in front of us. That totally makes sense. From a, you know, that certainly seems to change the role of the CISO, or, or at least have enough impact on the role of the CISO. What, what are you seeing there, Mark? Actually, Honordeep stated it quite eloquently, where I would kind of jump to. Now, this is in the U.S., but the SEC currently has a proposed amendment out there today, and it's 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 actually a massive amendment. Um, and it's the, it, so it's for for-profit companies, um, but but generally they all follow what the SEC is going to say in the U.S. But this is the the standards be regarding cyber standardized cybersecurity risk management strategy governance um, by boards. Included in there is that the boards are supposed to have a cybersecurity aware person on the board. So not only are they asking for, you know, traditionally boards were finance people, entrepreneurial people, which still are, um, but they're saying you need to have, if you're gonna be a private, if you're gonna be a public company, you need to have or a cyber aware person. You also need to have a consistent way of measuring cyber risk because it's representing a significant mm -hmm. danger to the investor base. Um, so I, I see that as a way to provide a, a standard base, kind of regardless of where you're going today, because challenges with security uh, programs anywhere today is they're either based on the service you offer you know healthcare in the us had hipaa um peace you know if you're a bank graham leach blyley uh, different countries they have different regiments this would actually be getting a baseline say no all that's important you still need to support it but a fundamental basis of uh, of a for for-profit organization needs to include cybersecurity and it needs to include a standard way of reporting those metrics up because right now the metrics to boards are all over the place so i i think it's exciting but it's also it's it's moving it into the more clearly into the business risk side of the house so so mark in some ways it's kind of counterintuitive you know that the CISO is thinking of themselves or thinking of security as a potential growth driver i mean what does that what does that do what, what does that do when you think about the role or you think about the the mindset of the CISO these days well you know traditionally the role of the CISO was make sure we're not hacked um, <laughs> and, and the way that happened is putting friction into the business and everybody kind of talked about you need to find that fine line between don't put too much friction in because the operators, the development teams, you know, they're no longer able to produce a product and you can't make profitability. Um, a lot of that has flipped around up front. When I think about it from just like revenue generating contracts, everybody now puts in significant security obligations that you need to attest to up front in order to do business. So as opposed to looking at it from your job is to make sure the, the windows are locked and shut, the doors are shut and you know nobody can come in through that, that side entrance to you're actually out there uh, enabling, this is part of the enablement of your services. Doesn't matter whether where you are in the industry today. I think the other angle there, Mark, is that like cyber really when it's done well is a business catalyst. 
it's an opportunity to enable business transfer to enable business transformation, digital transformation. And Adib talked about how every company now is a tech company, and cybersecurity now is a part of almost every employee's job. It's a part of that job. Um, so that concept of cyber as a business catalyst is very powerful, and it's real. I, I would kind of equate that in the old world quality into your manufacturing that cyber is to tech today. If that means that's a good analogy. I think it is. So, Andy, have you finished when you, you talked a bit about resilience and, you know, resilience can go, you know, extreme or can go very flexible. Well, how do you determine the right level of resilience that an organization needs? I, I think uh, so. that's a very interesting question from the perspective that there is no definitive answer. But uh, in order to run your business, this gives an extreme amount of clarity in terms of understanding what are, so to speak, the top tier applications, data, uh, uh, you know, colleagues, employees, processes that you need in order to run the business. Uh, so the resilience has to focus on that first. And then, you know, move on to sort of good to have and uh, uh, and other types of items that need to be maintained. This used to be the, the traditional concept of business continuity planning, but it was more focused on sort of physical aspect of businesses. Uh, e- e- cyber resilience is a little bit more in terms of putting new, uh, e- new technology in place. So if your core technology infrastructure uh, is under attack, you are still able to service your customers and service your colleagues. So the principally the way we look at it is there's two constituents that every business have, the employees and uh, the customers. You have to make sure the technologies are resilient which service your customers and then the, the core uh, colleagues that are needed in order to service those customers are part of that mix as well. So there is a, there is a hierarchy that you have to build and make sure the technologies are available uh, and resilient from that perspective. And this is not just applications. It involves data, processes, uh, you know, uh, you know, even laptops and workstations, et cetera, that are needed to access. So with boards paying more attention to this, you know, what 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 impact do you think it's going to have in the real world uh, across the business landscape? Um, you know, in terms of boards paying attention more to cybersecurity, will it will it change things for people, or will it become a sort of a check the box exercise for some? I think we're going to start to have consistency. Today, you have programs all over the board. Some are really mature, and others are, you know, next to nothing. I think you'll start to see a, a consistent approach across the board. Agreed. Uh, and I think uh, uh, the upside of all of this is going to be is as uh, cyber resilience and uh, you know the security organizations become more critical part of the business, I think there's a, there is an entire uh, set of continuum of talent that's going to be needed. This is not just a back office exercise only. More and more leaders are going to have to be, have to be a lot more business savvy, a lot more customer savvy. Uh, Technology and security leaders are going to have to understand how companies make money, what some of the risks are. Uh, So so I think this is a good evolution from a talent and leadership perspective in companies as well. And I think that's top of mind for a lot of boards as well at this point. You know, traditionally technologists, particularly security people, viewed the world in a technical risk. But that isn't uh, the view. You need to view it from a business risk. And suddenly cyber is also becoming a critical business risk and it needs to continue to develop. And, and as Anadeep said, that's how you figure out how your companies are making money. Absolutely. 
Well, let's let's wrap things up with one more prediction from each of you. What uh, what what are you expecting to see in the coming year, um, Mark? Why don't you go first? I would love to kind of go down, you know, something really thoughtful about the cloud. I kind of thought about, you know, ransomware that, you know, 2014, we thought ransomware, we had figured out and it continues to get worse. And I was going to make something, you know, prognition of that, the prognition that they're going to get over ransomware finally. But actually, I think kind of the topic we've been talking about post-quantum, I think Moore's law is no longer going to be Moore's law. It's going to be something different. And what that is going to be, I don't really know, but I think that's fundamentally going to change, and business needs to change with it. A, a, a new, a new version of Moore's law. That's a, that's a good one. How about you, Greg? Yeah, so I can't let the question pass without also plugging quantum as a area that's going to evolve quickly in the coming year. But I, I, I think your intent was to bring another topic to the table. Um, I think the focus on sustainable technology, green technology, is going to be a, a rapidly uh, growing trend. But the angle I think that I'm watching for is the concept of greenwashing, you know, representing your products or your service as, as greener than it really is, and people being really sensitive to that uh, in the coming year. Um, yeah, so that's an area I, I'm looking for more progress. We'll we'll look for we'll look for a future a future podcast and commentary on that one. Anadeep will give you the last word on that. Unlike my colleagues, I'm going to stay very lo-fi. Actually, yeah, I, I think if you look at 2023, I, I I think there's two things. You know, I'll give you a prediction A and prediction B, and see where we end up with that. I, I think we should get ready to see that, especially in this economic cycle, the government regulations are about to balloon. I think uh, I think the regulatory environment is going to get extremely extremely difficult, uh, and uh, either kind of related to it uh, is uh, the 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 acceptance and uh, uh, and finally sort of implementation of what is referred to as zero trust. Uh, I think uh, with the, where the world is going, uh, uh, I think friction is going to be back and and vogue. Uh, and uh, you, the security is going to take center stage in terms of saying assets need to be protected. So those are the two things that I see very tactically in 2023 that are are going to take center stage. I think that's great. Uh, e- easily things we could dive in more today, but we won't. And we'll hopefully leave people uh, looking for looking for future episodes on these topics. Um, okay, really quick. What's your what we're, we're recording this just at the start of uh, the 2022 World Cup. Who's who's going to take it? I'll go with the favorite, England. Anadeep? I hope it's Bessie, man. I hope it's Argentina. (laughs) All right, Greg. Well, I'm Canadian, and uh, Canada is in the World Cup for the first time since the 1980s, I think. So I'm going to have to go with the dark horse and and my national pride and and hope that Canada at least does well. But surely a long shot to win. But we're cheering for Canada. All right. There, there you have it. So whenever you're listening to this, you'll you'll see how well they did, um, and perhaps discover that um, whether whether our talents lie in cybersecurity um, or in sports <laughs> predictions. So um, with that, thank you, everybody. This has been a really fun conversation. Um, hope you enjoyed it as well. The Entrust Cybersecurity Institute shares news, analysis, insights, and commentary just like this for IT and business leaders who are charged with protecting and enhancing IT infrastructure. We are leveraging insights from Entrust, a global leader in protecting identities, payments,
payments, data, and infrastructure. Check out our show page for notes and links to the content that helped inform these conversations. Our podcast today was produced by Stephen Damone. If you have comments or questions or ideas for our podcast, write us at cybersecurityinstitute at entrust.com. And thank you all very much for listening. 